Welcome to Mormons on Mushrooms. In this podcast, we discuss alternative methods for healing from trauma and seeking a fulfilling life. We often discuss triggering topics. We ask that you make your personal mental health a priority. In addition, the opinions offered by our guests do not necessarily reflect the opinions of the hosts of this podcast. If you'd like to support the program, please visit www.patreon.com forward slash Mormons on Mushrooms. Thank you for listening and enjoy. Hey, I'm so now, now I have to consent to the recording on my end. Here we go. Admit. <laughs> There we go. <laughs> there we go. There she is. Can we do that again? Did you, did you, no. It's a one-time show. A, it's a one-time, <laughs> it's a one-time only. Doesn't feel fair. <laughs> hey Christine. Hey. Uh I'm Doug. Hey Doug. I'm Mike, and we've spoken before, but it's good yeah. to see your face. Yeah, good to see you. I've seen we your prefer... lovely picture, but thank you. I was just saying you look even lovelier in person as well. <laughs> but I didn't want to cut Doug off. Doug was talking, and yeah. <laughs> oh, I, the only thing I was going to say is that we prefer our guests know the tone right when they come on, and that's why we do our shirts up and and uh, we're we dive right into this thing. There's no like, so what's the weather like where you're at right now? What, what, are you guys having a like unseasonably hot summer? Because we are. You know, we don't like to do that shit. I thought about like what I should wear and I thought I could show up topless. And I was like, mm, maybe too far. <laughs> we, like yeah. we haven't met yet. So that might you be would, too soon. Wait, you just, would see two bright red faces of scared little boys who would then like, like slink away because, oh man. <laughs> so what are you drinking, Christine? We, you texted me earlier. and uh, I did say if I could drink um, vodka soda. There we go. Doug's oh, also going to be, he's going to be vibing with you today. He was just showing me his. I'm, I'm also just, this is just full of vodka. I, based on, based on what I think we're going to talk about today, I was like, man, I better get some bravery in me to ask some of these questions. Yeah, yeah. let's do it. Yeah. And I brought, I poured a healthy glass of red wine. <laughs> I poured a bottle of wine in my glass. Wine gives me a sexy vibe. So I want to bring the sexy vibes tonight with this. I like the sexy vibes. I'm down with that. Delise is here. She won't be drinking. So I'm glad, you know, we got that out of the way before she poured. It's like one of those never have I ever games with her. Yeah. <laughs> to say. And it had a taste of alcohol. <laughs> really? Yeah. Never. Wow. Damn. Look at that photo. That's a hot photo. Shalice. That's smoking. There she is. Oh, oh can't we, can't, hear you. we can't hear you. Yeah. Nothing. Still no. Oh, oh, turn it up. Now? Yep. Yeah. Yeah. That's perfect. I think we're good. Yeah. Well, Christine, this is Shalice, and the trio is here. Hi, Hi, Shalice. Nice to meet you. Nice to meet you. 
So Christine, I've been excited about this one ever since we chatted. I'm oh. so excited about it. <laughs> so I guess let's start. Why don't you give a quick introduction about yourself? And then I want to kind of talk about how this topic came up, why sure. we want, why we want to explore it, where we're going with it. And then we can just dive in and it'll be fun. Yeah. Awesome. Let's do it. Um, how far back do you want me to go, Mike? Like, well, let's start. We'll start right now with what you do, and then we'll get into some of your. And then we'll get into some of your background and your. Yeah, we're gonna we're gonna dive into like your childhood and stuff like that. But let's just do an intro. We so could. Yeah. I mean, you know, that's there. Uh, uh, so I'm Christine Falconer. I'm a licensed clinical social worker. Mm-hmm. I have my own private practice, and I work primarily as a sex therapist. Most, it's super cool. Most of my clients are either polyamorous kinky, swingers, other types of ethical non-monogamy, all those kinds of fun things. This is going to be a great conversation. (laughs) Yeah. It's like we're all (laughs) taking a deep breath of trying to figure out where to start. So I guess I would start by just asking you who goes to what, so what are the circumstances under which someone's like, I need to go see a sex therapist? So there's a lot of different reasons. Lots of people come to sex therapists just because they're having issues with their partner, right? Differences in libido. Maybe they used to have great sex. They don't have good sex anymore. Maybe they stopped having sex. Maybe they've never had an orgasm. Um, Maybe there's some sexual trauma or history from childhood that's getting in the way or anything in between. So if there's anything that's not working in the bedroom or sexually, that would be the time to go see a therapist. Wow. And how many, how many ex-Mormons do you, uh, you see? Quite a few. They find me and I don't put it out there that I'm ex-Mormon, but it'll always come up. Like we'll be talking or I'll look through their questionnaire and I'll be like, oh, so you lived in Idaho for, you know, 21 years. What did you do then? Where did you live? So it always seems to come up that, that I find the non-Mormons and they, or ex-Mormons and they find me. And and you're, you are ex-Mormon. Is that correct? You're Raised. Okay. All right. Yes. I was raised in Salt Lake city, um, and lived there until I got married at the lovely age of 19. I was the last of my friends to get married. I love that. Last of the friends to get married at 19. was the last. You know, I always love to joke because my mate, my mate got married. I was 22. She was 20. So I like to say, you know, I did not marry a teenager, but like, (laughs) yeah. Same. Same. We waited two days. We waited, yeah, we waited two days after my wife's uh, 20th birthday to get married. No. <laughs> yeah. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. Uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. I did break the mold a little bit in that I married a non-member. So that oh. was a bit chaotic and, you know, was really difficult for my family to accept. And were you still believing at the time? It was. Yeah. I really thought I would like flirt to convert. And then I thought <laughs> I would marry him and he'd convert. <laughs> And then when that didn't happen, I just went to church alone. I received my endowments. I went to the temple. I took my kids to church. I did the whole thing, um, held callings and release or relief sighting and then young women's presidency and did all of it, you know, just me and the kids. Wow. So you stayed in the church uh, quite, quite some time into your marriage. So how old were you when you, we know how old you were when you got married. How old were you when you started kind of, you know, there were cracks in the wall of the old uh, Mormon church? So... After I moved to California, Prop 8 came out. Ah. And when Prop 8 came out, I really had a lot of issues with it, both as um, an LGBTQIA affirming therapist and Mm. just as a principled human. 
I had issues with Prop 8. And when that started and I watched everything that went around that, that's when I really started to look into what am I believing, what's going on, and how am I okay with this? And the cognitive dissonance really started to set in. Yeah. Yeah, Prop 8 was like one of our one of our best recruiting tools for the dark side of the church. You know, I mean, it was the catalyst for me in a, in a huge way. And, uh, but first I just want to say props to your, your husband for like putting up with you in your garments for a while. Right. Yeah. He was horrified. So, so the night before I went to the temple, I remember him begging me and we're divorced now. We've been divorced for like six years. But at the time I was, we just had our first baby and he wasn't even a year old. And my ex-husband was just looking at me and he was like, okay, I really think that your church is a cult. And I know you're going to be really mad that I say this to you, but I think you're making a deal with the devil tomorrow. I don't know what happens in that temple, but I'm really worried that you are literally signing away your soul. Oh my gosh. Oh my gosh. Like I'm fasting because you fast before you go through. And I was like a little irritable and had a baby. And I was like, I don't have time to deal with your bullshit. Like I'm going fine. Support me. I don't see what's wrong with it. It'll you'll get over it. And then I came home and I, and of course, like the first set of garments I picked out were not even close to the right size. They drowned no. me. They were huge. They were made for very differently shaped women. Probably like the wrong material. Like, oh, I, I, you know what I mean? I had like, no idea. Yeah. Not that garments can be sexy, but they didn't even fit. I mean, they like hung on me like a movie. <laughs> yeah. And so I get there and I get home and I'm in the closet and I'm taking my dress off and he, I hear him come in and stand behind me. So all he's getting is a back view of the garments and he didn't grow up LDS. He never saw his parents in garments. He had no clue what he was getting into. And I just hear this really sad sigh. Oh, no. <laughs> and he goes, oh. Oh, man. <laughs> well, there's something really, yeah, there's something really <laughs> insidious about that in a way. Like, because I remember, I mean, I, I say props to him because as a non-believer, yeah, I could see how uh, shocking that would be. Because even to me as a full on PBM, like full on believer, recently returned missionary, you know, who loved to make out with my uh, fiance, you know, and like fill her back and like at least touch the bra straps and, you know, do some things like that. Right. (laughs) I just kind of forgot that when we went through the temple, we would, she'd be wearing them. And then that night we're making out on the couch and I'm like, oh yeah, this is, this is different now, you know? And I, I know it's like, it's actually triggering for her when I tell that story because I bet it's just the reality of what it was, you know? Um, yeah. Have you had conversations since then kind of talking about that? And now that you kind of have the blinders off being like, I understand what you meant now. <laughs> I do. When I finally left for good. So I stayed around in the church for probably about another five years after Prop 8 came out. Um maybe a little bit less. And I was just kind of doing my own research. I'd look things up. I was researching things. The CES letter came out. That was really huge for me. I started listening to John Dalen and his podcast. And I would just show up to church to play the piano in primary and I would leave. Like I'd fulfill my calling and go. That was really, I don't know why I still went. Like, I I think I just like the little kids, but (laughs) I took my kids to church. We went to primary and then we'd leave. I'd skip second meeting because it just irritated me. And then it just got to the point where I had this true crisis of faith. And I remember sitting in my front room and I was just crying and I'm like, I can't do this anymore. 
this, I'm a fraud. Like every time I go to church, I don't believe it. I feel worse. Like I'm having heart palpitations of the idea of walking into the building because I think it's bull. Like, I don't think any of it's true. I think I was lied to my whole life Mm. and I don't know where to go from here. And I feel very blessed. I had a really dear women who are friends our children are really good friends and they had left the church about two years before. And I called her up and I said, can you come over? And she came over and we talked and she gave me some resources and she gave me a hug, but more than anything, it gave me hope that I'd be okay. Like I was so traumatized in that moment that I would never be okay again, that I'd spent all this time and all my energy. And even at the risk of my marriage, we had a lot of fights over me serving any women's and, all that that entails and the time and the energy and it took them away from my family. And I looked at her and I was like, it's okay. Right. She's like, it's okay. And I just, and I was done (laughs) and I took off my garments and my husband and I drank and he'd always drunk, but you know, I had some booze and had a great time and, and really let go and made peace with the fact that what other people believe I just don't anymore. Man, kudos to your friend. Um, she was great. If I, it, these, this kind of a story comes up for us more frequently than than I would have thought, but just having a person in your life who can tell you that you're okay yeah. is like the deepest source of value that I, I, I that I come across. Is you know we do all of these different things: breath work and plant meditation and meditation and yoga and all the all the list of you know the bullet points of things we do to try to feel into ourselves. And it's like, if, if you can just have a friend who's willing to listen to you and say, you're okay, this is all okay. It's like the best fucking medicine. I don't, I don't know what, I don't know what that is. It, and it normalized it. I thought yeah. I was going crazy. Like I couldn't understand how the church that I thought I knew and the church I was beginning to understand was the same church. You know, the gaslighting oh. is everywhere. Well, yeah. Yeah. And I was like, am I crazy? Do I not understand? What am I missing? Maybe I need to pray more. Maybe I need to read my scriptures more. But the more I did that, it actually made it worse. Yeah, that double down method. Yeah, it didn't didn't work. And so I was, I will ever be grateful for her. And then of course, the Relief Study president came over and my other women I used to serve with would come over. And like, I swear they like took the short straw, right? Okay, whose turn is it this week? (laughs) (laughs) Mr. Falconer's house and talk to her and tell her about the true love of Christ. Right. Ugh. She can be forgiven. I'm like, mm, that's not what I'm looking for. But did they, did they say they miss you even though you're oh, still right there? <laughs> I'm like, no, we can still hang out. Right. Like yeah. I can see you other places than church and young women's. We could, we could go do something. Oh yeah. <laughs> that they can't. Yeah, so <laughs> good old call me if you need anything. Right. Like they'll say it. But they don't really need it. Yeah. Well, it's that it's like the the well that goes up like to end the conversation. Well, you know, just I want you to know you call me if you need anything. It's like, <laughs> okay. I don't I didn't need you over here right now telling me to go back to church. So I guess <laughs> I probably won't need anything in the future. I got another friend who will tell me I'm okay. I'll call her instead, you know. Exactly. So I'm curious if your specializing in sex therapy overlapped with your time in the Mormon church. No, not at all. Um, I'd always worked with people who were LGBTQIA and I've always been really affirming in that way. Um, 
but I didn't start specializing in sex therapy until about three and a half, four years ago. Oh, okay. So what, what drew you to that? <laughs> sex? Like, if I might ask. <laughs> Talking about sex? Like, what? Yeah, really. I think there was a few things. My understanding of sex growing up in the church from the purity culture standpoint really harmed my understanding of my body and my sexuality. And there's a lot of negativity, especially for young women growing up in the church. And I knew that I had some damage and I wanted to be able to, after I had been through therapy and I've done a lot of therapy on my own, after I'd been through therapy, I wanted to be able to help others who'd had that same purity culture and damage done to them and be able to really embrace their sexuality and, and enjoy sex and love sex. And even if it's by themselves. Yeah. Right. Yes. It's our favorite topic. Whispered that. I know. (laughs) I love it. The best. Right. Of vilifying it. Oh, we're going to talk about masturbation. Welcome to this podcast. (laughs) (laughs) We're good. Okay. Yeah, Yeah, no, I love, it's great. I teach women how to masturbate. I teach men how to get their women off. Um, And then there's of course all the emotional stuff too that goes along with it. But, but I love sex. And once I left the church and then ended up getting divorced later, I had that kind of free for all, like now I can really explore sexually what I never got to do. Yeah. And that's how I really fell into polyamory and more of a kinky lifestyle. And it was like, my blinders were off and I could do anything I wanted. Mm-hmm. And I found so much joy in just being able to be sexually free that I wanted to be able to help others. Oh man. I love that. Yeah. Can you talk and- a little bit more about the polyamory? Is that something that you did yourself before you started? Okay. Yeah, I did. So, <clears throat> so Wow. I'm really outing myself here. That's okay. Okay. <laughs> I mean, tell as much or as little as you're comfortable no, with. No, Maybe, it's, um, yeah, I would love it if you could um, just give like a short definition for those who aren't familiar. So polyamory is a form of ethical non-monogamy. And ethical non-monogamy is that umbrella that covers anything where you and your partner have agreed to that is not monogamous. And it really does mean anything. It's everything from monogamish which for some couples means we might have sex with other people, but only for each in the room to the opposite end, which is other relationships that have nothing to do with a partner where you have multiple relationships going on at once. So some people call it open. Some people are swingers where they'll swap partners, but don't do solo play. Some people are swingers that do solo play. Um, It just depends on however people define it. And there are so many different ways to do poly. There's hierarchical poly where you have your primary partner. And that's normally what they call your nesting partner, the person that you live with. Oftentimes you're married to that partner. And then you have secondary and tertiary partners that may or may not live with you, but always with the focus that you have that couple's privilege, that everybody is secondary to your relationship with your spouse or your nesting partner. There's kitchen table poly, which is what I did, which is the idea that everybody is equal and kind of the idea that, you know, if my lover's over and his lover's over, we can sit together at the table and have a cup of coffee and everybody gets along just fine. 
right? Wow, that's wow. so wild to me. Yeah. I love that you're here that we can talk about it and explore it some more because I think also growing up Mormon, it's just, I was so, and am, to be honest, so tunnel visioned into that stereotype of what we're forced into and what we're kind of brainwashed to believe is the only way. And so I just love hearing, I mean, more and more I'm hearing of people exploring this and I think it's so fascinating and it is something that we should open our eyes to and be more uh, accepting of. Yeah. Which um, brings me a little bit about why, um, how this topic came up in the first place. So there was a post made on our community Facebook page about polyamory and it's been, I think the most commented and popular post. And it was something that I've wanted to talk about for several reasons. One, I mean, I think, you know, Mormons on mushrooms, it, it you know, it's not everyone, but I, I, I do feel like mushrooms and psychedelics open people up to the view that, Hey, we're all one. Like, yes, I, I have my egoic self and you are you and this, but like, we're all one and boundaries tend to kind of dissolve more, you know, with psychedelics. And then also learning that like relationships are, are mirrors and I can have this mirror, but what if I look in this mirror? How does that, how does that look when I'm looking in this mirror, you know? And, um, and then there's just the fact that, you know, as kind of Shalice was pointing to, we love to kind of say we're a monogamous society, right? We, 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 we claim monogamy, but how much have we pushed non-monogamy in our shadow? If you look at one, I mean, you say coming out of the, the closet in a way, Christine, the people who practice it, who are in the closet, who don't talk about it openly. But then when you look at infidelity, you look at divorce, you look at even like fantasies and pornography use, how much have we collectively pushed non-monogamy into our shadow. Not saying that we all need to be polyamorous, but we have to kind of confront the fact that we're not really a monogamous people, if that makes sense. That makes perfect sense yes. to me. I mean, we have, we've grown up with this norm and not just in the church, but as a society, as Western society, that we are to be heteronormative and monogamous. And all the movies, all of the TV shows, and it's changing a little bit now, but the mantra has always been find your one and only be happily ever after. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And the idea that one person can meet all of your needs is absurd. And part of what I love about polyamory is it allows people to get different needs met by different people openly and honestly, as opposed to having an affair, as opposed to leaving the marriage completely or feeling like they have to get married in the first place. Okay. So let's talk about, uh, since I derailed that first question, talk about your experience personally and how that kind of opened up your mind to a whole new world, if you will. <laughs> talk about the Disney version. Speaking of the yeah, Disney. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> like cleaning it up or giving the real version. I'll give the real version. Okay. So I dated after I was divorced and one of the guys I dated had asked me a question and he said, is there anything you ever really wanted to try that you haven't tried? And he met sexually. And I said, I've always wanted to be with a woman. I've always had feelings for women. Women. I grew up, I was afraid until I was about 15. I was a lesbian. So I was terrified that my parents would hate me. I'd kicked out of my family, that it would be this mm -hmm. big thing. And then at 15, a boy kissed me and I went, Ooh, 
I can do this. I can be with a guy. I can, I can do this. I can be heterosexual. And I never did anything with women. I just always found myself attracted to them. So the attraction never went away, but I only dated guys. I got married to a man. And so when my boyfriend at the time asked me that question, I went, yeah, I'd really love to like be with a woman, kiss her, make out with her, have sex with her, all the fun stuff. And he said, we can make that happen. And I kind of looked down and I said, yeah, but like we're dating and we're in a relationship and isn't that weird. And I don't really want to date a woman. I just want to have sex with a woman. And he mm-hmm. said, go to a sex party. And I said, well, that's like a seventies thing, right? Like a key party, like everybody puts their keys in the pot and you pull one out and you go. And he goes, no, 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 no. There's swinger parties. They're all over. They happen all the time. I know a guy who knows a guy. I can get a scent. We'll go to a swinger party. What? Like, wait, Holy so shit. this is in California or? <laughs> so we went to a swinger party and we looked around and I was super like, this is like, I felt like I was walking onto a porn set. It was sex everywhere. And there were people dancing in all states of undress and was like what I imagined Sodom and Gomorrah, right? It was like everything, (laughs) everyone everywhere, alcohol, drugs, you name it. And then I saw some women and I asked to join and I did. And it was amazing. (laughs) And I was like, oh my God, like there is the side of me. I've never allowed myself to try or experience because of Mm -hmm. what I've told my whole life. So of course, afterwards I was like, when can we go again? And a month later we went to another venue and walked in and I saw somebody doing shibari. Are you familiar with shibari? No. It's, it's the rope tying thing, right? Like, yeah. Yeah. Yes. It's the kinky rope tying. And he was doing a rope course on a woman. And I thought the person was giving the tour and I said, who is that? And how do I get one? And she's like, oh, that's master Jay. Just go ask him. You can have one. And I went up and I introduced myself and I asked him and he said, of course, I'd be happy to. And he put me in a rope tie and he, as it turns out, um, became my polyamorous partner. So he was already in the polyamorous lifestyle. He introduced me to it. Um, I started reading books about it and he had a wife and a girlfriend who both live with him. Um, and then we were together as well, but I didn't nest with them. So I didn't, I didn't live with them because I have my own children and that's how it started. And it didn't seem weird to me. There was this part of me that's always really loved my great grandmother's story. I have her journal and she was the second wife of, um, I don't know, one of the Pratt boys. And (laughs) I love it. Yeah. And she had a really hard life, but she, a lot of her journal talks about being a plural wife. And I just thought oh, that's kind of normal. Like it never occurred to me that it was weird to be in love with somebody who had other people because it met my needs. So can I, can we go down this path for just a second? Because you're, you're, you're touching on something that I feel like is just, is triggering for me. Uh, so we talk about uh, polyamory or, or uh, ethical non-monogamy. Uh, but an, another word and the word that really was a, a, a factor of getting me out of the church is polygamy. Right. And, you know, the, the hidden history of polygamy and the, the, the skeeviness of the whole thing. It just it really gives me um, like a lot of real 
the, those, those negative feelings come up as we even just talk about that, because, you know, <laughs> here I am talking about this, uh, this positive aspect that people have found in their lives. That's that that's fulfilling and satisfying, but I just get real deep into my own self thinking, but what about polygamy? Like, what, can we talk a little bit about, I mean, I'm sure that comes up for people that are coming to you for, for therapy, but so I, I, I'm probably not alone in asking this question. It absolutely does. And polygamy is really the one man, multiple women. Right. right? And I don't see that a whole lot. Um, particularly because people who are polygamous, it tends, in my own opinion, when it comes, especially like when we hear polygamy, we usually think of like fundamentalists. Yeah. Abuse, to- abuse towards women and children is what I think of. Yeah. And it is a power trip. It is a way to keep women in check and it is a way to, con- you know, to control the population. And, and then of course they would get rid of the younger boys who would be a threat to the older men that the girls would want to marry. Right. Yep. There's all of that really nasty history that happens with polygamy with polyamory. What we're looking at is the ability for each person to have the love in their life that works for them. Mm. Whether that's one partner, two partners, three partners, whether those partners are sexual or not, or just emotional, it's everyone pulling together to meet the needs of the polycule of the greater good, so to speak. Yeah, I feel like when I think of the word polygamy, it just it feels oppressive, whereas polyamory feels very open, completely opposite. Speaking of like, you know, triggers, Doug, um, something kind of comes up for me with like, uh, because there is, you know, we think about the fairy tale, we're talking about the Disney kind of version of Mm -hmm. happily ever after. But that feeling of being the one and only, you know, like, oh, you're mine and I'm yours, you know, be mine, be my Valentine. Right. And that thrill we get from being someone's one and only. Um, And, you know, I was listening to a podcast, I I forget which one, um, and they were kind of talking about this concept, um, but he kind of brought up that, you know, when we, and I think this comes up in the book, there's a book called... uh, it's like the evolution of humans. Sapiens? No, not sapiens, but like, ah, oh, I can't remember the book, but like it talks about how growing up in tribes, we were more, probably more polyamorous in a way than in, I, I can't, I'll look up the name of the book and I'll say it here in a bit. But um, that when, you know, growing up in the way we grew up in our you know, Western society, usually it's one mother and we're isolated in a home and with several siblings. And so we learned that love wasn't abundant. Love was scarce. Our mother's love was scarce and we had to compete for that love. And, um, but you know, we think of like friendships and our friendships can be abundant. And so there's this question of, you know, when we're, if we were growing up in a tribe with multiple mothers and multiple caregivers, you, you learn that love is abundant and that just because someone loves someone else doesn't mean they love me any less. And there's an abundance to all of it. Um, 
Yeah. I don't know if you can speak to that at all. And I'll look up the name of the book in the meantime. <laughs> <laughs> no, there, it definitely is a switch of how you perceive things. And there's, and I'm going to get it wrong. I want to say it's South America. It might be an Island tribe, but um, Netflix did actually a really great, like 25 minute piece on polyamory. And part of it, they talked about, there's this tribe where the women sleep with multiple men. And in fact, the more men she sleeps with, the better it is for her children because nobody knows who the father it is. So that way there's multiple fathers to pull their resources, to take care of the children. That in that civilization, that community, it just made sense. And like, I get that, right? Multiple people, everybody's pulling together. Everybody's coming together for the greater good. It takes and a village. A lot right? people to live. Absolutely. Sex at Dawn is the name of the book, by the way. Oh, yeah. Cool. Yeah. Okay. I'm going to keep diving into my triggers here. Keep yeah. going. So uh, maybe a single person or a, or a, or a couple uh, come to you because they're they're one of the partners has brought this up and it's caused some kind of issue. Like, so if I'm dealing with, Oh, I, I jealousy and, and feeling less love or feeling like I'm not good enough or I'm not enough for that person. What kind of things, what kind of conversations are you having in those situations? And those are all really common experiences but they're also really common in monogamous relationships too, right? Polyamorous mm. people don't have a corner market on jealousy or on feeling like they're not enough for their partner or in feeling like they might lose their partner. Cool. You know what it, that brings? Oh, I don't want to cut you off. Go ahead. No, go for it. Oh, I was saying it brings up a little bit, something I was just listening to this week where they were talking about you know, we want security. We, we try so hard for security as humans and really difference between security and safety. Safety is the present. You know, there's not wolves eating us right now. All of us right now are safe. We have safety. Security is a future thing. Will I be safe in the future? And it's, it's, you're no longer in the present when you're thinking of security and this sense of the only security is really embracing the fact that this is all unknown. I could drop dead tomorrow. The world could blow up tomorrow. Anything could happen. COVID could go crazy again tomorrow. Who knows? Like, um, and just embracing the unknown and that really there is no security as much as we try to think there is. And there's something really beautiful about being able to let go of your partner enough to trust that they're going to come back to you. That got me in the gut. That I was like, "Oh man, I'm, I'm single," but it still got me. <laughs> yeah, that's a, yeah, we're talking about tough stuff for me here. Like, this is good. I'm, I am listening. When people come into my office with that, like, let's say that they're looking at opening up their marriage, the first thing I want to do is make sure that their marriage is really strong as it is. People who open up their marriage or decide to invite a third into the bedroom or who want to try an open relationship or any type of ethical non-monogamy to fix a problem, it's not going to go well, right? It's not a fix. I had an affair, so now let's just open it up tit for tat. No, no. Yeah. That's not going to make anybody feel better because what we didn't look at was what led to the affair and what led 
to what happened, right? Mm. That's the, where we have to fix it. So the people that have done their work and the relationships that are going to place, but are saying things like, I just feel like I have more needs. I feel like there's more in me. I feel attracted to other people and would like to explore that. Um, I would like to travel and my wife doesn't. And we'd like to open up. Um, especially, I see it a lot too with partners where they just enjoy different things. They love each other. They love being together. They might even have family together, but they also love the idea of spending time with other people that meet some of those sexual and emotional needs. A different mirror in a way, you know, um, <laughs> just you talking about building that strong foundation. Do you guys watch the rest of development or any, you watch that? Oh yeah. There's a quote early on where Tobias and Lindsay and Tobias is a therapist and he's also a closeted, you know, gay man. And he, he says, they're talking about opening up their marriage to, to fix it. And, he, and she's like, does it ever work for your clients? He's like, oh, it never works, <laughs> but it might work for us. Yeah. <laughs> he, he goes, he goes, people are delusional enough to believe that it'll work for them, but it never works. And yeah. then he pauses and goes. But it might work for us. <laughs> like it's like <laughs> such good writing. God damn it. Yeah. So on that note, yeah. Have you seen it work for people or couples that like have a strong foundation? Absolutely. <laughs> Absolutely. It works for them long term. It works as long as they both understand the agreements, the understanding, the expectations. And that's a big part of it. You know, couples that are looking into ethical non-monogamy or even a solo person who wants to join a couple or wants to be part of, you know, a polycule, understanding what the agreements are is really foundational and can help people avoid so many pitfalls in polyamory and ethical non-monogamy. So what would some examples of different agreements be? So they might be something really simple, like when you get to know somebody and go on a date, I want to know when you're going out. Um, usually there's a sexual safety piece, like always wear a condom um, or get STD checks ahead of time and exchange information. Uh, there's, if, there's usually also a piece about pregnancy, like make sure that either somebody's on like birth control or what have you. Um, and then what the expectations are, you know, is the person allowed to sleep over or do I only get to go to their place? Right. Is they're an understanding of, do we talk if we're out on dates with other people? Do we have a check-in? Um, if there's a crisis, what happens? If, you know, someone, are we dating other people where we might fall in love and have long-term relationships? Or are we kind of just open where it's just like a one and done? We just want to be able to have sexual experiences, but not have another relationship that might interfere with our relationship. And then everything else in between. Go ahead. Sorry. Go ahead. Oh, okay. Mm -hmm. Well, I, I'm, I, you, you've mentioned it a couple of times and I'm interested in knowing what the more common need uh, to, to open up a mirror, to explore a, a ethical non-monogamy or polyamory is the need primarily a sexual need of just like experiencing sex with different partners and different types or different positions or what, what, what have you. Or is there, is it more of an emotional thing of connecting on a different level or finding people who speak your language a little bit more or something like that? It depends. Um, for some communities, it's a lot more common to have it just be sexual exploration. 
And some people want the emotional connection. Some people that call themselves like, like I use the term swinger, but that's just a form of ethical non-monogamy, right? Primarily where they play together and then they leave together, but they have sex with other people, but they're not dating other people. There's not ongoing relationships oftentimes with other people, right? Whereas with polyamory, you would have means, you know, many loves. So you actually have other love interests. You have people that you fall in love with that are really part of your lives that, you know, if you are kitchen table poly, like for example, we were kitchen table poly, we'd all go on vacation together, Mm. all together with our children. We looked, I mean, people looked, don't get me wrong. It was, we were definitely a sight to behold because we have a lot of kids between us. (laughs) Um, But but we'd vacation together, you know, we'd go together as we were a thruple kind of for one point in time for about a hot minute. And we would travel together as a thruple, just the three of us. And again, people would look, but that was our, you know, that was our commitment to each other. I don't think I answered your question. Well, you answered it that it, it's both, but I'm, it's both. Yeah. I, uh, by the way, you've said so many things that have just made my jaw drop that I'm like, wait a minute, I gotta, I gotta think about this. Am I trying I to be that. a pervy little 13 year old boy right now? Or am I trying to learn some shit? You know so. what, Doug, let the 13, <laughs> let the 13 pervy Doug out. Cause he's not really pervy. He's curious. Let him roll. Yeah. 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 It's not, it's not perverted. It's curious. It's curiosity. And it's, well, that, I mean, yeah. yeah. So the, my point being that all of this, as, as you're talking about, being bound as you're talking about going on vacation, being a thruple, having shared uh, sexual partners. I'm like, man, should I, cause I, you know, those feelings of, of the shame. I mean, those feelings of I'm talking about something dirty here, or I'm talking about the, this naughty kind of stuff, but also it's titillating and exciting. And it kind of gets my blood flowing a little bit. And so I'm going through a lot while we're like live and in the moment, I'm going through a lot of emotions and feelings here. Put your hands up, Doug. I'm joking. I'm just teasing. <laughs> I'm, I'm in the zone right now. So I'm just letting, I'm letting, yeah, I'm in the zone. Oh, I think that's my favorite comment we've ever had on this podcast. Put your yeah. hands up. <laughs> <laughs> just don't expect me to do that. Stand up with my, my shirt lifted thing for a minute here. Give me. Yeah. Oh, I'm so bummed. I bet that's something that you come across often though with your clients is the shame in it. And how do you get past the guilt and how do you get past actually being able to enjoy yourself without feeling bad? I mean, how do you get people to do that and to actually release and be themselves and explore? It's a lot of work. And a lot of it is stuff that I can guide my clients in the office, but they have to go home and work. And part of it is being comfortable with themselves. You know, the first part of sexual exploration is being able to explore yourself. And as growing up in the church, that is absolutely not okay. Right. Right. You know, I don't know what it's like now, but I know the interviews I had growing up, they asked about masturbation. Still the same, I think. Yeah. Well, that wasn't an option. Right. So teaching a woman and I've taught, I mean, I give them books and I have like a, I, oh, I meant to bring it. I have a vulva puppet that I show. Like, oh my gosh. Yes. Holy shit. Yes. Where's this puppet? I'm like, I know it's in my office, but uh, I, I would love, 
Oh, sorry. I was gonna say I love a picture of that puppet. We can put on our Instagram when we. Yeah, new <laughs> yeah. picture of the puppet. Okay. Um, but it shows people, you know, where the G spot is, where you know, and I mimic the motion, right? And here's the clitoris, and here's the hood, and here's you know how the clitoris, the glands work, and this is how to do it. People don't know because our sex education, quite frankly, is terrible, and non-existent, <laughs> very very minimal, and it's not enough. It definitely doesn't explore pleasure and pleasure is such a significant part of who we are as human beings, but especially as sexual human beings, our bodies are made to receive and give pleasure. And when we can accept that and explore that within ourselves, then we can share that with others. And that's when the magic really happens. Wow. That's so interesting. I never would have thought that if someone comes into your office as a sex therapist and they say, I want to open up the marriage, your first thing is go by yourself. <laughs> Start with you before you even bring in your partner, before you bring in another partner. Wow, that's interesting. Well, I think, there's an, el- and I think there's an element to that where if you are um, speaking from like a Jungian standpoint of like uh, chasing an anima or an animus and an anima being, you know, if you're a, a, a male chasing like your inner feminine projected out in the form of uh, a woman and reverse anonymous for a woman. If you're looking for that other person to complete you, there's a difference between like, Oh, something I want to explore and a need that I have versus like, I, this, I, this person will complete me and finding that within yourself first before you, you know, so it doesn't become, I know I even heard someone say kind of like, and I think this was, oh, I don't know if I can share her name right now, but like, um, don't, uh, you can start the fire, but don't burn the house down in a way kind of thing. Um, yeah. Well, and the greatest predictor of happiness before marriage is happy or happiness in marriage is happiness before marriage. You know, we hear a lot of people who are like, once I get married, once I'm in a relationship, I'll be happy. I'll be happy. Mm-hmm. But the reality is that until we're happy with ourselves, we're not happy in a relationship and we're not happy in a relationship with multiple people either, because it's not what other people can give us. It's something we have to find in ourselves. So if that's the reason people are opening up because there's a partner that's unhappy, also a terrible reason, huh. it's not going to fix it, right? It's not a fix. It's another way of experiencing love and connection with other people. I think we're all thinking of something to say, but uh, well, I, gonna, all of us are like, should, I just got yeah. a lot of questions. That I don't know where to start. I, I know I have a shitload <laughs> of, it's so, it's yeah. so bad. I have a shitload of questions, but instead I'm going to, we haven't told a masturbation story on here for a while. So I'm going to tell a masturbation story. Please. Um, <laughs> yes. But you know, the reason I, uh, the reason I thought of this, Christine, is because you were talking about because of the indoctrination and the, and the process involved with sexuality in the Mormon church, people, maybe don't even know what masturbation is or how to masturbate. So uh, I was one of those people when I was in seminary uh, in high school, the seminary teacher kept talking about the dangers of masturbation and he kept saying this word masturbation. And so I started asking what, what is masturbation? And that got a laugh from the class. And I was typically one that tried to say things that would get a laugh from the class. And so I got in trouble and my seminary teacher kicked me out. I had to go sit in the hall for the rest of seminary. Oh. And then as people were filing out, uh, 
I was about to say his name. This guy named Danny pulled me aside and said, Hey, do you really not know what masturbation is? I was like, no, I, I really, I'm sincerely like, that's not a word I know. And I couldn't just, I didn't have a phone. It, this was nineties. I didn't have a phone. I could just like look up the word. <laughs> masturbation. No Google. Yeah. No Google for that. So Danny says to me, uh, masturbation is rubbing your wiener till it feels like you pee your pants. And so that was, <laughs> that was how I, yeah. So, I mean, <laughs> the, the inner scientist in me was like, okay, well, let me go home and figure this out. And, and I became, you know, after that, I became really good at using different devices, whether it was hands, socks, couch cushions, Gatorade handkerchiefs. Uh, he awakened the demon in you. I figured out that you could rub your wiener until it felt like you peed your pants yeah. uh, and tried to master that art, I guess. Well, it's an art. Is that what you said, Christine? Yeah. It is. Oh, yeah. It's healthy. Yes. It's so healthy. And I, I agree. Doug, I just want to share the first time. So like with me, it, let's continue on the masturbation theme just for a minute. Cause like yeah, I mean, I the first time I did it. Add on to. Oh, let's yeah. keep adding. This is great. This is great. I just learned because I was like rubbing up against like my bed or my pillow. And I kept rubbing until like something happened. And this was before I could, I, I didn't produce semen at the time. So the first time I did, it was like, holy shit, is it an infection? What's going on? This is how little we know, right? Oh, yeah. But then I remember someone joking about Vaseline and being like, oh, Vaseline, right? So I remember going in the bathroom, putting on Vaseline and being like, nothing's happening. <laughs> I just thought it was like, <laughs> I thought it would like magically, I'd put it on and like the magic would happen. <laughs> oh my God. And then I started like, oh, wait, oh, I get it now. It's just kind of like slippery and uh, great, you know? <laughs> oh man. That's hilarious. But you guys were probably what, like, 14 13 12 when I was a little late out? I was a late bloomer I was 15 when I first yeah. masturbated yeah. yeah I was early See, it I didn't even know women could masturbate that's how far removed I didn't even know that was an issue for women I didn't oh, know what man. it meant so the first time it happened for me I was with my boyfriend and I orgasmed on accident it just happened and I was like oh what was that am I dying like no idea. And then I was like, I need to recreate that. How do I do that by myself? I still didn't even know that that was called masturbation. So honestly, it was probably a good thing because I never felt guilty about it. And then uh, later yeah. on, when I learned that's what it was, I was like, oh, and then the shame kicked in. But I was a senior in high school when that happened. Uh, oh, my gosh. Yeah. And oh, oh. it's so wild. I was a senior my first time masturbating, too. I, all those bishop interviews they'd ask and I'd be like, no, but I didn't know what they were right. asking me. Yeah. Like, no, obviously not. I don't know what the hell you're talking about. Uh, no, I had seen the Sharon Stone movie Sliver and there is a scene in that movie where she's. No, I know that scene and I know that movie. Yeah. <laughs> and I watched that scene and I went, I can do that. Women can do that. That looks really awesome and amazing. And I'm so going to go try that. And then I figured it out. Oh, man. But I was 17, a senior in high school. Yeah. Yeah. So that it's funny. I was actually going to ask and then Doug jumped into his story and this all leads in perfectly. Do you, is it common for you to work with men who aren't actually familiar with themselves and masturbating in a, I don't know, I don't want to say a meaningful way, but like in a connected way, because I know women are very disconnected for masturbation, but do you find the same thing for men as well? 
It depends on each person, but I have seen it. Yeah. You know, and it depends on the relationship they have with themselves. Like some people masturbate to self-soothe. Some people masturbate because obviously it feels good and we like it. Sometimes we do it just to get the stress out or, you know, to relieve ourselves and, and, you know, kind of that pent up, you know, horniness for lack of a better word, but it depends. But I have seen men who also don't have a great connection with their body. Particularly men who are premature ejaculators, right? Mm-hmm. They're the ones who don't have quite that connection. Well, I even noticed that um, since becoming, since leaving the church and being like, oh, masturbation is okay, it's been hard for me to really explore my body still, you know, like really, um, there's this, uh, I don't know if the frustration comes up, but there's like, because so many years there was like a guilt and shame attached to it. And it was like a quick thing and maybe associated with pornography. Sometimes it's like, uh, a quick, you know, (laughs) beat and release in a way. Right. Instead of like an exploration, a curiosity. And when I get in moments where it is really curious and it's an exploration, I mean, I think I've talked about this before in the podcast, Doug, and I don't know if you were on that one, Chalice, but like when I like, I, I call it like when I made love to myself in a way, and this was only like two years ago and I was yeah. on weed and it was good. And it was just like exploring my own body with the curiosity that I would, if it was just like another person next to me, you know, as if I was a young teen and this person's next to me and like, Oh, what is this? You know, how does it feel if I touch here and here? Mm-hmm. And that's, it's a very new thing for me. And still something that it's still kind of hard sometimes that curiosity and exploration. Yeah. And it's that mindfulness, right? That piece that goes with it, that you were purposely going into it with being mindful of how it feels and how you're touching yourself and what that's like and what that lived experience is versus going in with the goal of just getting off. Yeah. 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 And that's what I wondered. And I wanted to see if you had any thoughts on if it can become almost too much or done repetitively to where it's almost addiction. Um, is there like a healthy line or is it just however much is however much is for you? <laughs> I mean, we can't. So I'm from the standpoint that there's no such thing as sex addiction, right? We okay. can't be addicted okay. to our own bodies or the chemicals our body makes when we have sex. Now, is there out of control sexual behavior? Absolutely. If you're masturbating so much that you're not able to get your job done, you're not able to be there for your family. You're not able to function during the day. Then obviously that's an out of control behavior that needs to be addressed. Other than that, if it's consensual, if your wife's next to you and it doesn't offend her, right? Like if, you know, if it's not bothering anybody, if you're not doing it out in public where you're going to get arrested, go for it. Enjoy it. Have a good time. Hmm. I love that. So getting back a little bit to kink and polyamory. <laughs> <laughs> I want to, I want to talk about kink first for a minute. Cause you mentioned you were kink, uh, mm-hmm. friend, or I don't know how you phrased it, but like, uh, describe what you mean by kink and what, um, what that is and what, you know, cause like as a ex Mormon or a, a more, uh, someone who's trained Mormon kink sounds kinky. weird, kinky. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Unholy. Unholy. Yeah. It Well, for sure. Right. Definitely unholy and not appropriate. Um, How how would I define kink? So 
I'm trying not to use a terrible, so I hate Fifty Shades and it's awful, but one thing Fifty Shades <laughs> did, it really is, it's non-consensual and he's terrible and whatever. But one thing <laughs> it did do was really kind of lift the curtain a little bit on, on BDSM, right? right? People got interested in it. They, it became more acceptable to talk about it a little bit and it brought more people out into the open about what is okay to do and what isn't okay to do. So when we're talking about kink, particularly when I'm talking about kink, I'm talking about anything that is beyond the norm. So anything that would require consent, a conversation, a safe word, um, whether that's impact play, where you're using instruments to um, help your partner um, feel different sensations, such as paddles or whips or canes, even ice cubes, candle wax, um, that would be more sensation play. Um, whether that's the shibari, like rope bondage, um, whether that is a power exchange, right? A dominant submissive uh, situation, something like that. Doug's dying. Yes, Doug. Oh, thank oh, I'm you. Just make, I'm just making hands. sure my hands are up so nobody thinks anything <laughs> about me while we're that. doing this. Yeah. I thought you had a question. Oh. Like, no, I'm dying. just proving. I'm just, I'm just proving my innocence over here. <laughs> Got it. <laughs> so kink is really anything that falls into that category, right? When we're looking at kink, oftentimes what we're looking at is also BDSM. Not always, they're not exclusive, but um, so bondage, dominance, sadism, masochism, submission, um, all that good stuff. Well, one of the things I think of, you know, and I'm not super familiar with it, but as I'm learning more about it, um, there is an element of, obviously role-playing to it. Like we're going to set a safe container and you have safe words usually, right? Always. And the thing of like, you have, we're setting a safe container where we're going to play certain roles and embody those roles. And which, you know, a lot of things we talk about on the podcast is like kind of the roles we play here in this earthly realm and maybe whatever it's for to fill certain things or to help release some of our trauma or to experience different sides of ourselves. And so when you think of, Oh, you know, this is a safe container. There's no one outside of this. We can be and experience whoever we want to be in the safe container. There's no shame. There's no guilt. There's no anything. I, I can see, I can see the appeal of that. Yeah. It's amazing. There is, there can be a lot of healing through kink. There's a lot of trust that goes into it. So if you're playing with a partner, particularly one that you're really emotionally and physically attached to there, it can really open up a whole other side of options for the relationship. And there's some people that just play during a scene, right? A scene would be that time set aside to do that kind of play. And there's some people that do it 24 seven, right? They're in those roles in their relationships all the time. They're always in a dominant and submissive role, right? That is what they agree to do. Kind of like the movie Secretariat or Secretary or whatever it is. Not the horse one. The one. With, um, <laughs> not the horse one. Not Secretariat. No, the other one. Secretary. Um, that one. <laughs> yeah. You have me in a really weird. Uh, that sort of, Don't go there. Yeah. Not We're not in two yeah. I, I'm going to have to say this because there's probably more than one me out there. Uh, bondage, dominance, sado, masochism. Is that what BDSM stands for? Yes. Oh, oh. shit. I never knew before. And then you said Hold it. I, was on. Like, oh. I didn't know that either. 
Yeah, that that blew my mind because you said it in that order. And I was like, oh, wait a minute. So for some little piece of my brain started making acronyms. And so, (laughs) yeah, I never knew that's what BDSM stood for. Same. There's a lot of Dougs out there when there's three Dougs (laughs) in this room. (laughs) Wow. And I missed two. So there's there's a loop. So there it's bondage and. So bondage, dominance, um, sadism, masochism, but it's also submission and. There's another one I'm missing that I always forgot the top of my head. But. Mm-hmm. So is S&M submissive or is that the sadism and it's masochism? It's submission oh. and sadism. And oh. then it's masochism. Wow. What? Can you define masochism? So masoch- um, someone who would identify as a masochist would be somebody who enjoyed to be on the receiving end of pain. Mm. So it can be needle play. It can be um some type of more restricting bondage it can be paddles or canes or even just some heavy hand spanking whatever they consider to be painful but also pleasurable right people always mistake and have this idea that masochists don't feel pain well we do we feel pain it hurts but then it gets you to this place where it hurts in a really good way yeah you want the hurt and um, your adrenaline and everything else starts pumping. And it's like a runner's high where you have, you hit, you hit subspace. There's this amazing alteration to what's happening in your brain. And it's like you're flying high on drugs that are just what your body's making in the moment. Yeah. It's like, uh, on, under the tattoo needle, um, yes. when you're, when you're, when you're, when the needle is on skin, yep. you're, it, you, you feel that pain and it almost gets to that point of, Oh, this is too much. And as soon as the needle is lifted, you yearn for that pain to come right back. So it's like you get to the point of like, oh, he needs to lift. And then as soon as he lifts, it's that thing of, oh, put it, put it back on, put it back. Yeah. I mean, that's best I can describe masochism from my personal experience. Interesting. For me, it's bringing up the fact that, you know, we incarnated here into duality and the pleasure pain spectrum. You know, the, um, the degree to which you're willing to feel pain is also the degree to which you're willing to feel pleasure. You know, the feeling, the duality and being okay with the duality. I don't know. It kind of brings that up for me as we're talking about this. Uh, And then, oh, sorry, go ahead. I was just going to say, if someone does want to explore this with themselves, with a couple, husband, whoever, where do they find a healthy source? Because I know that there's a lot of, there's a lot of material material out there as far as porn that maybe doesn't give the best representation of where one can start. So how does one even go about just finding a sex therapist, I guess? Before, sorry, Christine, before you, before you talk, I just wanted to say, I wish we people could see your head as Shalise was talking because you can, oh you do these like shakes and nods that like, right. Yeah. <laughs> Like porn, there was like a shake, and then this. And there was yeah. This, yeah. I don't even know I do it. So like when I start talking, I usually like black out, and I just go. <laughs> so I'll address the porn thing first. There's a lot of kinky porn out there, right? Anybody who searched kinky porn, whether it's you know humiliation porn or bondage porn or whatever, it's not hard to find. It's on every platform. But what people forget about porn is that it's not real. Right. They all discuss ahead of time what they're willing to do. It is a scene. It's scripted. They have every impact planned. 
They have discussed what they're willing to do. They've gone through it. They have words to get them out of it, right? They're edited together. It's not, it's not real. It's acting. Not always great acting, but it's acting. And that's not what it's like to go to a dungeon per se, or to actually be tied up or to have somebody, you know, pain you or flog you or something like that. Um, if a couple or person was interested in going into the kink world, is that what you were asking? How would they do it? Or just into polyamory? Um, more specifically, the kink stuff, the things that we may, from the Mormon standpoint, consider dangerous and a little touchy and a little scary. I think it can be dangerous and I think it can be touchy and scary. And I always encourage people to really listen to their own alarm bells. And if something's going off that it's not right, then to believe that and leave, right? Mm. There are definitely people out there that are willing to take advantage of newbies and people that don't know a lot about it in order to abuse or kind of get their, what they want. Uh, The safest and best way to do it would be to look for a munch is what it's called in your area. So a munch is a meet and greet, usually at a restaurant, at a public place. And it's where you can meet dungeon owners and other kinky people that go to the dungeon and ask questions and get to know more about it. And usually that's where you'll get vetted, right? Because, Because it's not, shall we say, legal to, you know, hit people with different things. Um, dungeons aren't public. Like there was a public one in San Francisco. You'll find a few that are public, but for the most part, they're private. So you'll need to go look up where your local munch is, go and get vetted, meet some people, and then go slow. Go to some classes, learn about it, read some books, educate yourself. The best way to do it is just to go and educate it. I went to that one in San Francisco on a tour. Yeah. It blew my mind. I left with my jaw still on the floor and like <laughs> the dungeon of like, I was just in shock. There is so much that I did not know. <laughs> How long ago was this? That dungeon? I think I was only 24. So hmm. six years ago. What did you say about that, Christine? I think it cut off. I, cut you off. I loved that dungeon. It's shut down now after COVID. It didn't through COVID, but I loved that dungeon. Yeah, it was fun. It was like a castle. It was enormous. Kink, oh, you're thinking kink.com. Oh, I think so. Yes. I think so. Wow. Oh, They're also shut down, by the way, and sold off all their stuff. Oh. But yeah, they did have a um, the person, anyway, one of the people that run that also helped run um, one of the other dungeons there in San Francisco. Well, I think the beauty of all of this exploration is when I did go through there, I was like, yeah, I would never want to do that. And so it, it doesn't mean you have to be willing to be flogged or tied up or any of that. It's about also figuring out what you don't want and mm. setting boundaries for yourself. Yes. And so much of what we do is just about exploring. See if it feels good to you. If it feels good to you, do it. If it doesn't feel good, don't. It's really simple. Your full fuck yes, right? That's what we full were talking about. <laughs> yeah. Uh, uh, can we can we kind of go back a little bit here and yeah. and and talk about? So, I, I'm going to go about this a roundabout way. Um, when I I mean my my sexual education was 
limited and I got married, one sexual partner. Um, it wasn't until after leaving the Mormon church that I felt comfortable um, looking into how I can improve as a sexual partner. Because previous to that, I felt like that would be uh, akin to porn. It would be somewhere in the neighborhood of, of pornography. So upon leaving, I started kind of digging into how to be a better sexual partner, basically. I mean, just someone who can, whose partner's pleasure is a, is a focus. And I mean, the reviews have been good about the change. And I guess I was really bad at sex for the first 10 years of my marriage is what I'm kind of, what I'm kind of admitting to here. Reviews are but I would like to talk about some of those things because I'll bet that as what you do, you have men who are uh, in this, in their current state, not capable of bringing their partner to orgasm or to multiple orgasm, whatever it might be. So can we talk a little bit about that with some specifics and detail and that kind of thing? Sure. Yeah. Okay. That wasn't really a question. It was just like, a, okay, Christine, go ahead and talk about pleasuring other people. <laughs> So it, when, if we're looking at the framework of all sex that's consensual is good sex, right? And then we just expand from there. When it comes to sex with our partner, a lot of it is making it where our partner can give feedback and where we're willing to receive it. It's very hard when we're growing up in a church or in a system where not only are we not told about sex, but we're not allowed to ask about sex. Mm-hmm. So getting to the point where we can ask for what we want in the bedroom is really hard for a lot of people. Yeah. And it still feels really shameful for a lot of people, right? I shouldn't like that. I shouldn't ask for that. It doesn't feel, you know, I know that might feel good, but I don't know how to say do that more or do this other thing less. Mm-hmm. Um, there are great books out there. I usually always refer people to um, a couple different books that are my faves um, to help them. But it really does start with, have your partner show you how they masturbate. Have your partner show you how they touch themselves. What works for them? What kind of speed do they like? What kind of toys do they like? Do they like vibration? Do they like more of a sucking feeling on a toy? Do they like fingers? Do they like anal play? You know, what kinds of things are they, do they like? And if they don't know, that's where you start, right? Start with some toys, start with, helping your partner explore their body and making it safe to do so in front of you, right? Where, where orgasm isn't the goal, where the goal is to explore your partner's body and see what kind of touches you give them that feels good to them and go from there. Uh, I love how you said orgasm, not the goal. Cause that, that comes up so much. Right. And even if it starts out that way, it, you get in this like flow of like, there's no goal here. Eventually there's like, oh wait, there's a goal, you know, <laughs> and then you, you feel that shift. And one of the things I love about, uh, you know, I I've talked about in this podcast before how MDMA has taught me how to be vulnerable, you know? And one of the things with MDMA, it's really hard to orgasm on MDMA and you're just like enjoying every moment. And you're having like all these like energetic orgasms as you're, as you're playing with it, you know what I mean? So it's like, it just shows that like, the experience of sex is so much better than the finish, you know? Yeah. Yes. Well said. Yes. And convincing some people of that is really difficult. Mm-hmm. But when you think back to like the best sex you've had, 
it's not the orgasm that you're remembering. It's all the other stuff you did that led up to the orgasm that makes it the best sex you've ever had. Wow, that's totally right. Holy shit. (laughs) So that's what you're looking for, right? We're looking to expand all the other stuff. And it's really normal to get into a rut. We've been married. We can do the same thing. You know, I know A, B, and C works to get my partner going. And then we go to D and E and then we're done at F and everybody's happy and we roll over, go to sleep. It's really easy to get into a rut. The way to change that is mix up the script, try something new and look at intimacy as a different way, right? When we expand looking at sex as opposed to just penis and vagina or even oral sex, right? When we look at expanding it to anything that involves erotic touching, erotic kissing, um, feeling your partner, rubbing your partner, enjoying your partner's body, them enjoying your body, you know, anal play, right? Any nipple play, anything that gives you pleasure and your partner pleasure, that's what we want to go for. And more, and sex begets sex. The more we have sex, the more sex we want. And then we're able to really hone those skills. Nobody has sex and then rolls over and goes, that was a waste of time, right? We have sex and go, God, why don't we do this more? Yeah. <laughs> really make time for this. You know, how do we, how do we forget how good this feels? How did we go two weeks? Wow. Where do you start with people though, especially growing up in Mormonism who don't have the experience and they don't actually know what feels good or how to do something that might feel good. It's kind of like, well, I don't know what I want because I've never experienced anything other than like missionary position. I usually get that. I don't know what I don't know. Yeah. Very true and fair. So I always go back to masturbation, exploring your body, having orgasms alone, figuring out what feels good, trying some different toys, trying some different techniques, and then inviting your partner in, having them watch, having them join, having them help, and then teaching them what you like, and then teaching the couple other options, right? Sex is fun. And yes, it's dirty and messy and all that stuff too, which also can be fun. Right. So when we can let go and just feel an experience and teach our partner what we like, it works both ways. They can teach us what they like, and then we can enjoy and explore together. And sometimes it's through books, right? The Joy of Sex is still a classic, right? But there's a million other great books out after that that are fantastic that really help people come up with new ideas, new ways of touching each other. I feel like I need to jump in here, and I'm hoping that you'll expand on my PSA. Men, or if you're pleasuring a woman, it's all about the foreplay. All about warming up the oven. I just had to jump in and say that. So I will add to that that it takes the average woman 24 minutes to be completely open to receive a penis. Mm -hmm. And when I say that to couples, I usually get the guy like dumbfounded, like it doesn't even last that long, like start to finish, right? let alone foreplay. Right. Right. So if you really want to get your female partner going, all the lead up has to be at least 20, 25 minutes to really have them open and ready to go. Right. And that's not even just like touching. It's emotional. 24 minutes. Tell me that you're coming home in 24 minutes and sext me all the things you want to do. That's enough foreplay too. It's like, you can be so creative. And I think Um, A lot of people forget 
that foreplay doesn't just have to mean touching. It can just even be an emotional buildup. Absolutely. I love that. Because our brain is our biggest erotic organ. Right. So when we're thinking sexy, we're feeling sexy. So we don't have to be in the room. But we have to be thinking sexy. Will you two women please keep talking about what uh, what women methods want? are towards pleasuring a woman? <laughs> I mean, I'm I'm being serious. Will you just keep going? Sure. Yeah. yeah should we list all the things? Massage, yes. but not a massage that ends five minutes later with you trying to like get busy. I'm yeah. talking an hour massage where you don't actually touch anything that I really want you to touch because then I'm dying for it. That is a good one. You're talking about the energetics of everything, right? Like if you're massaging with the energetics of a, an objective. Yeah. Like let that objective go and just explore and be curious. And there's no, again, it's like focusing on a goal instead of being in the moment and being present. Um, And I'm saying this because I have issues with this all the time. Because when I do, when I am in the moment, I feel like there's an energetic of like, if I'm, you know, touching my mate and it's like a, I'm just like loving touching your body and I'm curious about it. Great things happen. But as soon as I get in this thing, like, oh, I'm doing this because great things happen. Nope. It's like, (laughs) so it's a weird game, you know, but it's like this, like, be present, be curious. And release expectations. And I think magic happens when you can get to that point. And that's a great teacher for life itself. That's what I was going to say is presence is key. Because when you're present, you can really hone in on what your partner likes, what they don't like, and do more of what they like. And just follow the flow, follow the energy. Like she was saying, instead of doing A, B, C, and D, you can pay attention and maybe go back to A and then swerve around to D and go back to B instead of, you know, having a a notes chart and checking off the boxes. One of the biggest complaints I get from women is I hate it when he starts to massage me because then I know he's going to want to have sex. It's that pressure of my partner only gives to me if I'm going to give back. Yes. And two hands in the air for that one. And then they just stop touching each other, right? Because then she doesn't want to have him touch her because she doesn't want to have him expect sex. Mm-hmm. And she doesn't touch him because she thinks when she touches him, he goes straight to, oh my God, I'm going to get laid tonight. And so then they just have this slowly drift apart effect as opposed to, like you were both saying, like being present, bringing in the moment and taking expectation off the table to where I can touch you and we can enjoy each other. And this leads to sex. Great. If it doesn't, this was still a great intimate moment. Yes. This was still a way to connect with you as my partner. And I appreciate you. I want to share one thing and I don't know. I hope it doesn't drill us too much. I know we're kind of playing with time here a little bit, but like even just the expectation of like, when I look back at the last six months, you know, um, (laughs) You know, my mate and I, as we've kind of grown and evolved and expanded in a way, there's like, there's much more ups and downs. There's a roller coaster effect in a way. Right. And, but looking back at those moments where I was expecting something, but it turned out in one of us, like really expressing frustration or crying or whatever it was, 
that's a beautiful moment. And it was a connecting moment too. <laughs> One that like solidified our base. You talk about like having a strong base in a relationship. Those moments, it's not just, you know, us fucking that creates those beautiful moments. It's also us sh- like sharing our, the downtimes and in the times when like I want sex and she, and I come with this energy of like neediness and she's like, no. And then I learn from that and we hold space for that. And there's a, there's a flow in all of it. And I'm having a hard time articulating it, but like it's, it gets back down to kind of just releasing expectations and knowing that even those like quote unquote shitty moments are also connecting moments too. And can be, I think. I think, I think they absolutely are. And they are because you are seeing your partner. There's vulnerability in those shitty moments, right? Yeah. You're sharing vulnerable things and so is your partner. And so to share in those moments and to be there for each other, even when they're difficult, those are growing relationship moments. Yeah. Hmm. I agree. I and that. I love that you brought up the healing part, Mike, because I was going to ask that a little bit later too. Some of the best sexual experiences I've ever had. One wasn't even sex. And two, I ended up a crying heap on the floor afterwards because of releasing emotional trauma stored in the womb. You want to talk about energetic healing, man, women store so much in their womb and releasing that with a partner who had the intention of just loving and caring and helping and pleasuring it just, I mean, therapy, sex therapy is what I want to say. Sexual healing. Yeah. Sexual <laughs> healing. God, there's so much to learn, man. I like, I'm, I'm outing myself probably here, but there's so much to learn about giving pleasure. I, I want to soak it all up because, because ultimately I am still the aforementioned just learned to masturbate 15 year old who it's like rub something against your wiener until it feels like you pee your pants. I I'm, I'm (laughs) still that I'm still that guy somewhere. And so there's just so much to learn about receiving and giving pleasure. And it doesn't, God, I don't know how to learn it all. (laughs) I don't learn. It's so exciting. And, um, yeah, yeah, I mean, I'm working with this guy now and I'm trying to talk him into writing a book and also doing some sort of instructional thing on what he does because it's incredible. And the capabilities that women have for pleasure is just like as tall as Mount Everest. And people are only just climbing hills because women don't know that they can climb Everest. They're only climbing the hills. And there's just so much that I want women to know about how capable they are of receiving this pleasure that they don't even know exists. I had one of my best friends growing up called me. We both been married about four years, but she said, I asked you a question. I said, Sharon, she said, um, how do you know if you've had an orgasm? Oh, right. I've been there. I've been that right. person. And then that's like, Ooh, honey, I don't know how to tell you this, but if you're asking me that question, you haven't, you haven't had one. Yeah. And so we spent a lot of time and I didn't know much about, I mean, I knew how to orgasm at that point because I've been masturbating since I was 17, but I didn't know 
how to help her. And I remember even then, and I was in grad school at the time, I was trying to like, Hey, so have you thought about masturbating? And she was like, Oh, I could never. And then I just stopped. I'm like, I don't know what else to tell you. Right. And as women, oftentimes we deny ourselves for lack of a better word, the, um, the go ahead, the, okay, we, we don't let ourselves experience pleasure, right? We get stuck in that mode of I'm a caregiver. I'm a mom. I'm a wife. I'm, you know, I'm an employee. I'm this, I'm that. And when it comes to getting our own needs met, especially sexual needs, some women aren't good at that, right? It's really hard to give themselves permission. That's what I was looking for to really take the time to explore just themselves and have sex for just themselves or to be the one that initiates or to be the one that after they're done saying, Hey babe, could you maybe try fingering me a little bit? I haven't come yet. Right. That's really vulnerable. Even in a marriage of 10 and 15 years to say to your partner, Hey babe, I haven't had an orgasm yet. Is there a way we can work on that together? Do you want me to pull a toy out? Would you like to try this position? Do you want to try that? Because so many times we have this pattern in our head that sex starts and ends with demand. It starts with an erection and it ends with him having an orgasm instead of it ends when we want it to end, right? It doesn't have to end with an orgasm ever. Mm. There's still other things we can experience, especially as women. So expanding that is really helpful. So in lines of that, you know, and talking about you, I mean, as you're saying that you're talking about, you know, expressing your needs and your wants, um, I imagine there are many people who are listening to this episode who might feel like, okay, I want to be more explorative, whether it is ethical non-monogamy or whether it's just more curiosity and more exploration within our own marriage. Maybe they've been Mormon and ex-Mormon and they've been married for 10, 20 years, 30. And, but they are feeling like, oh, my partner would never, how, how do I even begin this conversation? How, how would you counsel someone in that? Yeah. As if they're worried that their partner wouldn't be open to it. Yeah. Just kind of like, I feel like I want more exploration. I want their needs. They're not being met in me in a way. And how, how, but you know, after like, let's just say someone who's been married for 10 years or so. And they're like, I know my partner doesn't, isn't, or it's going to trigger things in him or her. How would that person, yeah, I mean, even start? It, even as simple as uh, a permission to masturbate. I mean, we're we're talking about like, yeah. I mean, people can come into a a therapy session, or they can they can have reach a point in their marriage where it's not even openly acceptable to to masturbate. Or, or no, I I remember like I'd been traveling a lot as an active Mormon, right, and then. When I left the church, it was still another year before, like I talked to my mate and she's like, yeah, I don't care when you're, you're at work or whatever. And you masturbate. It's like the doors kind of open. I'm like, whoa, you don't care if I, <laughs> I masturbate. Yeah. Yeah. That's the deal. <laughs> I think that's a really good point because what happens is there are agreements. I know we talked about like agreements and polyamory, but there are agreements in every relationship. And the first thing I always ask couples are, what are the agreements? Well, we're monogamous. Well, what does that mean to you? Is your partner allowed to flirt with other people? Is, do, you, or do you both watch porn? What about masturbation? Where do those fall? Because I've met couples where the one says, usually it's the women, 
who says he's not allowed to masturbate. And I said, oh, that really tells me that you really want control over your partner's body. Tell me why you think that's healthy. Mm. Yeah. Right. Do you tell him when to eat? Do you tell him when to sleep? And that feels very controlling to me. Right. So part of it is looking at what are the agreements in the relationship? And then how do we expand that? Right. Being able to have control over my own body and my own relationships is really important. I need to be able to have sex with myself whenever I fucking want. (laughs) Assuming I'm not going to get arrested. Right. Yeah. (laughs) So, so then we look at exploring and, and just having that conversation and it can be a conversation about needs. Like, Hey, I have these sexual needs that I'd like to explore or desires I'd like to look at, or it could just be, we've been married a long time. How do we explore new things together? What are some ways we can connect more with each other in an intimate way where I can try something new sexually, or you can try something new sexually? How do we touch each other? Like we haven't for a long time. Like, do you know when you're first with somebody and like, you're just getting to know their body. And so you're touching him and you're kissing him everywhere. And you're like learning the lay of the land. Mm-hmm. When you it's been a long time for me. I, yeah, I'm I nodding like, yeah. yeah huh? And the guys right. are like, um, so when you've married a period of time, oftentimes that exploration goes away and you go straight to, I know she likes her nipples tweaked. I know that she likes it when I finger her a little bit and then we can have sex and be done and roll over. Right. And I'm not saying you guys, I'm saying there is a predictability about sex. Mm-hmm. So what we want to do is we want to go back to that excitement. And when we touched everywhere, when we kissed everywhere, mm-hmm. when we caressed everywhere, our skin is erogenous zone. There's not a part of our body that isn't. It's just how we do it. Mm-hmm. Well, it's also a good point to that. If you go back to exploring your partner who you've been with for years and years and years, is it possible in your experience that likes and dislikes completely change. Absolutely. Absolutely. And a lot of it too, when we look at revisiting that comes back to, has my partner been honest with me this whole time? Right. Sometimes what I hear people say is, I don't know how to have a conversation with my partner about sex because I've been faking it for a really long time. Mm. And I don't want to hurt their feelings, right? I don't want them to know that I don't enjoy this thing that they do. Right. Right. I said, I liked it, but I really don't. How do I say that? Or have them not do that anymore without hurting their feelings. Right. And then I say, well, that's a really tough conversation, but we can practice. Yeah. Because if you want your sex to be better going forward, you're going to have to come clean. And I would say to that point too, there's an element of like, without hurting their feelings. And I know that's hard. It's hard. It's hard to hurt your, someone you love and someone you care about, hurt their feelings and trigger them. But you know what? we trigger each other and those triggers identify parts in ourselves that we need to work on and release. And so stating your needs and your wants and your desires might be like, it might be super triggering for your partner and they may need a day, a week, a month to really work through that. But you can also, because of your love for them, hold space for them during that time and know that like, okay, I get this is triggering, but I can't deny my needs anymore. You know, I, I want to, I want to bring more of me out. And I want to share it with you and that's okay. And I get that that's scary, but um, it's okay. And I'm here for you too. And we can work through it. I love yeah. that because that comes from that growth mindset, right? Like this is a growth opportunity for us as a couple to get to know each other better and be vulnerable and build from that. Yeah. 
which gets scary. Do you want to go another about... hour and a half, or do you want to try to like wrap yeah. this up? Right now? <laughs> we should probably wrap how... it up. But um, one thing I do want to ask Christine, because that gets scary when you you know we're talking about like exploring each other's bodies or different things we want to do. But when it's like, oh, you know what? I think I'm kind of attracted to other people, you know, and like, hmm, or I want to be explore this. That's a that's a real trigger, right? Um, but how have you seen it, you know, in your own life and maybe people you work with? What are the what are the upsides? And I know, you know, in, in talking to, you know, I have some friends who are polyamorous and they, they throw out the word compersion mm-hmm. and compersion is a word where it's like, it's you, you know, your partner is having an experience that's lighting them up in a different way. And it's not with you, but because of your love for your partner, it, instead of feeling, you know, that jealousy, jealousy could be there, but that, it almost gets transformed into I am loving that this person I love is having this experience that is fulfilling them. And I don't know if you can talk a little bit about that. Some of the upsides to it and and people who have explored in this way and it has, it's worked for them as, you know, and contrary to what Tobias said (laughs) in rest of development. I think that takes a very grounded person to be able to see and recognize and love that like without yeah. feeling jealous or inadequacy or what I would even say also feeling jealous and inadequacy, but being like, I'm like okay to it. feel that I'm okay to feel all of that because this person means a lot to me. And I, I love this person, but yeah, I don't know. Yeah. So part of it is, is looking at it from a couple different ways. One is, is that when we feel jealousy again, Probably people don't have the corner market on it. Model people feel jealousy all the time. What we want to do is look at what is coming up for us, right? Jealousy is really a masking emotion. So we really need to look at what's coming up underneath. Are we feeling neglected? Are we feeling insecure? Um, do we wish we could have that similar experience with our partner and we're feeling left out? Once we can identify that, we can also really work on our compersion. And I love compersion. And you're right, it's just the idea that. I have love for my partner and I love seeing them happy. And so I'm feeling happy that they're happy. Right. Even if it's with partner A, B, or C, you know, I'm happy that they're doing something that brings them joy because my partner being happy makes me happy. And it can take practice learning conversion and a lot of patience with yourself because sometimes it doesn't always come easily to everybody. And sometimes it's easier to have conversion with maybe the existing partner than a new partner that gets brought in. And so giving yourself some grace and some self-compassion and just experiencing it and processing it with your partner and looking at what's coming up for you can really be key. But there's something, when poly works, it's really, really beautiful. For me and my experience and with my couples and polykills that I work with where it works, when you have this amazing group of people that you are all intertwined and that you love and that they love you. It is your own community. It's your own group of people in time of crisis, in time of need, holidays, good times, birthdays, celebrations, anniversaries, and you get to celebrate all that together. It's not like I get less of my partner. It's that my time is different. I have quality time versus quantity time. But when I need something, they're there. 
And I also get to be part of this family. And for me, that family structure, the polycule, the holidays and the vacations together and seeing everybody find their own path is really rewarding. Wow. It's making me emotional. (laughs) Before we sign off, can I ask you to give us and our listeners one very specific and concrete thing that you think men miss with women's pleasure and women miss with men's pleasure or a tip or a trick? Ooh, put me on the spot. Let's see. I totally put you on the spot. I'm sorry. Um, I think you touched on it earlier. I think the biggest thing ever um, with men is to recognize that it's more than just, it's more than just warm them up for five minutes and go to town, right? Women enjoy, and men do too, but that emotional connection, the lead up to sex, but particularly taking it slow and enjoying their partner and making it a safe experience where they can ask for what they need. And even modeling that by saying, would you like it a certain way? Is this fast enough? Is this slow enough? Do you want it harder? Show me what that looks like for you. Um, Really having their partner have a voice and being open to hearing the voice of what is pleasurable for their partner. And for women, I would say, I think a lot of women just go straight to the penis and that's a mistake. It's a lot of body, right? Men, there's more to you than your penis, <laughs> right? I know it doesn't always seem like that, but there really is. Right? <laughs> so whether that's, you know, caressing and kissing and loving and touching and the testicles and anal play, nobody has brought up anal play besides me. So I wanted to just like point that out. Um, are, are we uncomfortable with anal play? I- I'm not uncomfortable not uh, bringing that up. I just, I've been very uh, vague or unspecific because of my uh, limited number of sexual partners. <laughs> Fair enough. You know. Um. <laughs> <laughs> I did. Uh, I, <laughs> can I share this? Whatever. I, do, I did buy an anaros. It's like a toy. Yeah, to explore the prostate. It's a great little thing. <laughs> you have you tried? You've tried it. It's got, it's good. It's a great little thing, Doug. <laughs> great little thing. Oh yeah, great. man. I would love to destigmatize anal play, especially among men, because there's this uh, this horrible belief that well, if I like that, I must be gay, and that's just not the case. No, of course not. If you like it. Things in your anus, it means you like things in your anus. Yes. All it means, yeah. it means you like butt play. So what? It doesn't make you gay. If you're attracted to men, then there's some maybe level you're of gay. Men, <laughs> bisexuality. Oh. Maybe you're gay, pansexual, what have you. But just because you like anal play does not make you gay. It means you like anal play. Amen. And I think we're getting to a world, guys, hopefully. And I know we love labels. You know, you're talking about polycules and... uh just a lot of different labels, right? But like, and gay and straight and uh, bisexual and this, I think we're getting to, hopefully, I think we're getting to a world more without labels. And I was even listening to a clubhouse recently. They were talking about the term heteroflexible, where it's like, 
I am heterosexual. Like I don't really fantasize about men, but like, oh, I'd be curious, you know, to like, I, you know, there's like a curiosity there and there's a whole spectrum mm-hmm. and we get so caught up in labels. Does this mean I'm this? Does this mean I'm this? No, it just means like, just like, are you curious about something? Explore that curiosity. If you're not, then don't, you know, like follow your, follow your heart in a way. And let's get rid of these labels. Um, even if, even if they help sometimes define certain situations, the, I guess the fear of the label of what does that mean about me? Right. And, you know, I, I, I think maybe we can get to a spot where it's, we, we're not fearful of that anymore. It's like, call me whatever you want. I, I enjoy certain things. And sometimes I enjoy certain th- things on a Tuesday and sometimes I don't, you know, and <laughs> I don't, I don't care. <laughs> I want what I want. Yeah. Oh man. Can I, can I make a confession? Mm-hmm. Yeah, please. Um, I have always known, this is something I've always known. Um, that I could suck a mean dick. Like I've known that <laughs> my whole Doug. life. I'm so glad you're saying that, Doug. <laughs> I know. I, I, I listen, I know I could, I know, I know what's going on down there and I know I, yeah. I could freaking knock that thing out of the park. <laughs> um, I've never said that out loud. You know uh, what, Doug? Know I'm so glad you did. Cause I feel the same, but at the same time I'm like, Oh, you know what? I don't know if I want to like then have coffee with him in the morning and be like, <laughs> you know, I don't, <laughs> And so how to define that? I don't know. <laughs> That's so funny. Yeah, man, we might need to cut that out. Here. I don't know. <laughs> I think we leave it. I think you leave it. I think we'll let we it be. It <laughs> Christine, this has been fucking amazing. I just, yeah. I'm telling you right now, this is going to be one of our most downloaded episodes. I just For know. Sure. Well. Yeah. Oh, yeah. And yes. you know what? I would love to make you our resident sex therapist. <gasps> on this podcast. Can I really? I would love that. Yes. Yeah, definitely. We need one. So yeah. let's have you on more. I mean, I think there's going to be more conversations like this and it's going to be magical. And yeah. me, baby, I'm here. <laughs> oh, you, you are awesome. This has been so freaking fun. Like I've had a, a world whirlwind of emotions going on this yeah. whole conversation. Yeah. Same. <laughs> right. Thank you for having me guys. I appreciate it so much. I, this is really just fun. I've had such a good time. Ah, oh, same. All right. So in the meantime, like, where can people find you? Oh, yeah, yeah. Oh, um, <laughs> uh, tiesthatbindcounseling.com. All right. Tiesthatbindcounseling.com. We'll put it in the show notes. So you can reach you there. And I, I love the name of that, by the way. Same. Yeah, yeah that's awesome. Hey. Yeah. All right, y'all. I love All you. Right. Much love. Thank Thanks, you so guys. much. Love you. Bye. Thank you so much for listening to Mormons on Mushrooms podcast. We have so much fun recording it. And if you love it, we would absolutely love it. If you could leave a review on wherever you get your podcasts, it would really help our visibility so more people can listen to it and be enlightened and hear our crazy stories. So thanks again for tuning in.